But before we get there, let's pause for prayer. Lord, fulfill your promise to us, for you have said where two or more are gathered, you are in their midst. Lord, we've come with various needs. Uh, Some of us are hurting, some of us are broken. Some of us perhaps need to be broken. Some of us need to be humbled. Whatever our need is, Lord, not what our perceived need is, but what our true need is based on your understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, minister to us according to your word. Provide the encouragement. Provide the comfort. Provide the incentive. You know, provide the strength. Provide, Lord, whatever it is that we need uh, to move forward in life to your glory, to the betterment of the world in which we live, and, and also to our own personal contentment and sense of purpose. We ask it all with expectation because of Jesus Christ in his name. Amen. We certainly live in an image-based culture. In fact, uh, companies know this. Advertisers know this. They flood us with images. Uh, It's well known that in any given day, Americans are exposed to 3,000 different advertisements. And if you watch TV for four hours, give or take, you're going to be exposed in a four-hour period to 100 commercial messages. And that's just media. That doesn't even count what you see as you go to work or what you read in your magazines or, or in your newspapers or however you receive your information, including the web these days. In fact, when it comes to news reporting, they say now that in news reporting, one-third of the airtime in news reporting is given towards advertisements. You know, American corporations spend $500 billion a year on advertisements. And pharmaceuticals, you know, how important that is in America where we are a drug-based culture, always driving up to that window, picking up our prescriptions— For every $1 that pharmaceuticals uh, invest in discovery or research, they will spend $2 advertising to you to try to get you to buy what it is they're selling. When it comes to adults, especially men, a lot of that advertisement is sexual in its orientation. Whether it be the beer commercials or the GoDaddy job site or ED medications or or even some fast food chains like Hardee's or Carl Jr.'s. You know, it's, it's very sexually explicit, scantily clad women. I know that you would expect me as a pastor to be offended or to be embarrassed by that. I'm, I'm not. You know, I, I get that I live in a culture that doesn't honor my values. I don't even expect them to honor my values. It doesn't mean that I have different uh, uh, expectations of them. I can live in that world and I can understand where they're coming from. No, I'm more insulted by it, I'm more annoyed by it, that they would think so little of me, that they would think that that's how superficial I am, and that that has any impact on my buying tendencies. It simply doesn't. It's frustrating and a bit annoying, uh, because I know that young girls, and even women, even wives, sometimes wonder, is that what my husband or is that what my boyfriend expects from me? Occasionally, consumers will rise up and throw it back, you know, into the face of those who advertise. Here are some notable examples. Reebok came out with an advertising campaign that says, cheat on your girlfriend, not on your workout. That didn't last long. <laughs> they, they pulled that commercial quickly. But it's not just sports groups. Uh, the National Milk Association also came out with some ads. Uh, 
I'm sorry I listened to what you said and not what you meant. Milk can help reduce the symptoms of PMS, you know. Didn't bode well. See, it's even making you uncomfortable now as you uh, are hearing some of these things. And, and, and this, is, uh, this is amazing, and I'm sure this person lost their job when they were working for Target or at least for uh, a product that Target sold. It was a, a kimono dress, and over here where you have the standard kimono dress, it was called dark heather gray. But over here in the plus size maxi dress, it was called manatee gray. Now, I don't know who that was that thought plus women would like to be compared to a manatee. Uh, but what were they thinking? You know, Target had to answer for that, I guarantee you. What's even more amazing than that is it's not true. It's a perception. Actually, character and other qualities uh, matter more to men and matter more to women than what the advertisers try to trick us into saying. 1,000 people in a, in a Fox online survey answered the question, name the top 10 things that men find most attractive in women. And here's the answer, her scent. You know, pheromones, I suppose, but, but also her, the smell of her hair, smell of her body wash, you know, her scent, the freshness, a swagger, she has confidence. Uh, altruistic qualities. You know, she's kind to other people. She wants to help people and accomplish something. She has a sense of humor. She's playful in life. She's genuine. She's sincere. Obviously, these were not done by a frat house. You know, they were not. Uh, this is what somebody was looking for in a partner, not just in a, you know, a one-night date. Not clinging, you know, uh, not demanding, uh, you know, not possessive spontaneous, you know, able to, uh, to have fun, adventuresome. She takes care of herself. They don't have to be a raving beauty, but they have to care about who they are, and they have to show some self-interest. Passionate about something. She has a purpose other than herself. You know, uh, she wants to make a difference. And then ultimately, of course, sexuality entered into the picture, you know, kind of a sensual nature. But it's always weighed down on the list, no matter what sites you might look at. Despite what the advertisers might tell you, character matters. And it's only fair to say, uh, well, what do women look for in a man? And uh, they did a survey like that too. Sense of humor, a guy who doesn't take himself too seriously. Confidence, has purpose in life and demonstrates it. He's optimistic, he's not negative, he's forward-thinking. Clothing, He has a certain style about himself. It doesn't mean that he's always, you know, uh, dressed to the nines, that he's always wearing suits. Uh, it's, it's what she thinks is appropriate. His smell, you know, whatever. I'm sure it's not, you know, sweat. But, uh, you know, that he, he takes care of himself, that pheromone thing again. Affinity towards children. That's interesting. And if he's kind towards children, if children like him, uh, she sees that as, a, as an important thing. Ability to listen. My wife would have put this like over in here somewhere, I think, you know, ability to listen. She'll sometimes, when I'm on my phone or I'm watching uh, golf on TV, she'll say, turn that off and look at me. <laughs> Make sure that I'm listening. Uh, respect, you know, rugged, as she defines rugged, and uh, sensuality or sex, always pretty far down on the list. Character and integrity matter. Although in our macho minds, we don't always say that. Uh, in reality, that's what we look for in a person. It matters even in the culture. It matters especially when it comes to the Word of God. 
Let's take a look at Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 here. But let me just set the background for you. This is after Jesus was raised from the dead, after Easter. In fact, it was after Jesus had ascended back into heaven, and the disciples were now commissioned by him, empowered by Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, to go out and spread the good news of what Jesus was teaching about the love of God the Father for everyone and how he had provided for them in sending his son Christ. And so Peter and John are headed up to the temple to worship. And as they're headed up to the temple to worship, they pass by a man who is crippled from birth. And the man is going through his routine, brought there by friends, you know, say alms, alms for the poor, and just taking whatever he could get. Peter stops, and he says, look at us, you know. We're not just passerby. We're not just a coin that somebody can drop, you know, in your cup. We are people. Look at us. And so he stopped, and he looked at them, and he said, we don't have a lot of money, but what we have, we freely offer to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man was miraculously cured at that moment so much so and his life so changed that he was walking he was skipping he was jumping and he followed them all the way into the temple much to the annoyance (laughs) you know not not to their pride you know not because they wanted to receive the accolades because they had done nothing but to the annoyance of peter and john in fact the people began to gather around him and wanted to know how he had done this and what they had done and it's interesting how they explained themselves They say to these Jewish people, they're going into a Jewish synagogue. They say the God of Abraham made this man walk. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. The one that you turned over to be killed. And then he even gives them a bit of an out because it was a bit of embarrassment if uh, people thought or argued about whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. He says, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as even did some of your leaders. But he said, don't you realize that Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among your people, and you must listen when he comes. And so he's connecting Jesus. This is not something new. This is the heart of who we are. Not our Jewish traditions, but the integrity of our faith. Indeed, the prophets from Samuel, as many as have spoken, foretold these days. And so this is the setting for what takes place. He's saying, you know, we are the true faith. We're still teaching the same true things. God loves you. He wants to save all people. And he has fulfilled his promises that he made of old. Well, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people in this way. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Now remember, the guards that were posted at the grave on Easter morning, these were not Roman guards. These were uh, guards placed there uh, at the request of the Sanhedrin. At the request of the Sadducees. These were temple guards that went out and made the arrest. And and so these were the people that were upset then because they had spread the lie among uh, the followers of Judaism that the disciples had stolen the body. They were saying, not so. Jesus is raised from the dead. And so they were upset because it was making them to look like the liars they would. So they seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. 
But many who heard the message believed in them. So the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, as was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other members of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power, by what name, do you do this? Do you teach a different message? They had made a point of saying it's not a different message at all. Then Peter, who is now filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, you misunderstand us. No, he didn't. He, he even got more emphatic. He said, if we are being called to account for an act of kindness showed to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you now healed. Jesus, quoting from the Old Testament, is the stone the builders rejected. It has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw that the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, realized that they were ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note. The only thing that made them special was these men had been with Jesus. They stood in integrity. They stood in the truth, despite the fact that they were uneducated, common men. And when you stand in your integrity, when you stand in the truth of whose you are, not what you do for a living, but the fact that you are God's child, there is power in that. In two ways it demonstrated itself uh, in this text. First of all, the, the Sadducees and the temple guard were offended. It will offend people when you stand for what it is that you believe. But conversely, secondly, it also says that uh, about 500 people came to believe and were saved because of who they were. There is power in the name of Christ. It gives us a quiet confidence, a compass, and a guide to the most important things in life, the opinions of life. David understood this in Psalm 119. He said, Your truth makes me wiser than my enemies, even when they stand before me. Your truth gives me more insight than all my teachers, because I meditate on your statutes. Your truth gives me greater understanding than even my elders because I obey your teaching. They keep my feet from the wrong path when I obey your word, when I do not depart from your teaching, the teaching that you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, and therefore I hate everything that teaches otherwise. And then that famous line, your words are a lamp unto my feet. And a guide unto my path. The Lord's truth matters. It gives power. But God's support is more important than even the fleeting nature of popularity. You know, Peter was empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
The Lord promises that his word will not return to him void. You know, as we stand in that truth, there is power in that truth, and there's an immediate recognition. Despite the pressures that we all feel to conform, and the tendency that we believe that the world's values are the way in which we get ahead, whether it's at work and the standards that are there, and we separate our Christian life from our work life, or whether it be at school and, you know, what it takes to be popular in school, versus what the Lord would have us be, you know, supporting and loving, not joining in the cliques that put other people down, or whether it be in dating, you know, and recognizing that our body is a temple and that we should honor the Lord by the way we honor our relationships, or whether it be in our family, you know, who wants us to uh, do certain things that would be a violation of the things that we believe and who mock the things that maybe we believe. You know, there's tremendous pressure to conform. In fact, Peter and John were feeling that as well as all the disciples that day. They took great pains to explain that this was not a new teaching. This was the essential teaching. But the church had begun to believe in the traditions. In fact, the first controversy in the early church was, do you have to become Jewish before you become Christian? They actually had a conference about that. Do we require circumcision? Do we require uh, that they first uh, be recognized as Jewish people before they can accept the Jewish Messiah? And the answer was no. You know, that's, that's still the issue today. You know, have traditions of the church become more important than the essential quality of what the church is. You know, it's often unpopular uh, to stand in integrity. We find that occasionally true also at St. John as we look at our values. You know, I, I call these high-water churches. Uh, there are churches that gather existing Christians to them, and they grow fast, while churches that don't do church as well begin to fade away. And we see that in America all the time. So many small churches failing, and as they fail, their members go to churches that do tradition better. And, and so uh, these churches are traditionally bound. You know, they do the things that people have loved about the church for generations. They are inwardly focused. You know, they, they test the wind and find out what their people want, and they give them what they want. They are culturally distinct, not culturally relevant to society, but apart from society. Uh, you know, they use instruments, they sing songs that are not culturally relevant. They're culturally distinct. They're not bad. I was raised in a church like that. I was fostered in my faith that way because I was raised in such a family. But this church will not reach those who are not already in the church culture. They will reach Christians and those who marry Christians or those who are born into a Christian family. And that's a popular style. We've chosen to be not traditionally bound but biblically sound. You know, what does God want us to do? And that's what we're going to do. And we're going to get everything out of the way except for strong teaching of the Word of God. We're going to be outwardly focused. I just want to say how proud I am of you. And when Jen comes up and talks about a couple of kids in Cambodia who are going to be able to get educated, whose identity is going to be forever changed because of your support. Stronghold Cambodia did not exist until we got involved. And there's so many other stories in the city and in Belize among the poor. And I know that's asking a lot for you to sacrifice. You could spend that money on your own children. You know, you could further your own life. But you're going to do just fine with a lot less than you have now. We need to be outwardly bound because that's what God said. You know, go into all the world and make disciples. 
We're going to be culturally relevant. You know, we have screens up here. We have uh, vapor uh, that, that enhances our lighting. You know, we have technology like this. We have live streaming. It's not necessary for me. But it makes a difference to many. You know, it, it isn't necessarily uh, the popular thing that we do. It's the important thing that we do. We're here not to gather Christians from failing churches and do church better than those who are failing. We're here to reach the lost people. It's harder, it's slower, but it's more significant. And we think it's what God would have us do. To stand in integrity and not always just do the popular thing. You know, not just put butts in the seats. But make sure that people who aren't reached receive a message in a way that they can begin to question their previous values. Ultimately, substance, ultimately integrity, will determine the outcome. Many of you probably have heard of the man James Dobson. He established Focused on the Family in 1977. He's been a strong advocate of traditional family values and Christian family values. Been used by God in a powerful, powerful way. Before he became well-known, before he wrote the book, Dare to Discipline, in 1970, a multi-million dollar bestseller, and, and left his profession before. He had a Ph.D. in childhood development, was a teacher at USC, and a respected fellow uh, in that uh, main university. And, and he still brags about, uh, about USC, and he's still happy to be identified with them. Uh, but he, he wrote that book, Dare to Discipline, and boom, suddenly he was speaking across the country. Uh, he became a millionaire because of his books, and he was in demand. He was a strong Christian, to be sure. His daddy was a pastor, raised him in the Midwest. And his daddy, who was now an elderly man, was watching his son suddenly come into fame. And he took the time, after Dare to Discipline, a couple years later, to write his son, Dr. James Dobson, a letter he said, Danae, referring to our daughter, this is James Dobson telling about his father's letter. Uh, he wrote, Danae is growing up in the wickedest section of a world much further from the moral decline than the whole world into which you were born. You know, James Dobson was born in the Midwest, Kansas, Nebraska, somewhere like that. Uh, I don't remember, but I know it was the Midwest. And, and now he was a professor in L.A., and that's where this man's granddaughter was growing up. He said, I have observed that the greatest delusion is to suppose that our children will be developed, will be devout Christians simply because their parents are or have been. Or that any of them will enter into the Christian faith in any other way than through their parents' deep travail of prayer and faith. But this prayer demands time, time that cannot be given. If it's all signed and conscripted and laid on the altar of career ambition. You know, it's grandpa's heart going out to his son. Failure for you at this point would make mere success in your occupation a very pale and washed out affair indeed. So what if you... Help the whole world find Christ and you lose your own kids doing it. How will you feel about that at the end of your days? So it's not enough, you know, even for us to think that we can bring our children to St. John Children's Ministry or that we can make sure that they get confirmed and we check the box or that we can make sure that they 
and get to a youth experience. Or even that we, uh, you know, just worship once a week. You need to demonstrate your faith to them. Integrity matters more than teaching. How you live your life matters more than the exposure that you give to them of other people who teach them about the Lord. It's not about from here up. It's about here. It's about their heart. And they will observe and they will catch your values more than the things that you teach them. If you're teaching them things that you're not living out, that will be known. In fact, uh, the Bible says, don't merely hear the word of God, but put the word of God into practice. If you hear the word of God, you're like a person who looks at their image in a mirror and then walks away. As soon as you walk away, you forget what you look like. But when you practice your faith, you become your, bone, your own best witness. You're constantly reminding yourself because of how you live and what you do, what your values are, and that makes a difference. It's all about integrity, and integrity matters in the passing of faith from one generation to the other. It's interesting that God uses very ordinary people to do extraordinary things. In fact, it's his default position. If you look throughout the scripture and you find the people that we now know by name in the Bible, most of them would not have been chosen by us to do anything significant. Abraham, when the Lord called him uh, to be the great leader that he became, the founder of a great nation, was 80 years old. How many 80-year-old people in the congregation say, my best years are still ahead, still have things I need to do? You know, the Lord has need of me. Lord, send me, send me. You know, and Moses was a son of a slave. She wasn't even sure he would grow to maturity because the Egyptians were putting to death all the baby boys, just doing the best she could for the moment. And God called him out. Saul was uh, just a farmer and a farmer's son when, when God made him king. David was a shepherd boy. Very, very young when God chose him because of his heart to be the next king. Matthew was a tax collector. Mary and Joseph lived in a very obscure place. Obscure even to this day, Nazareth. It's a long way from Jerusalem. But the Lord knew the integrity of that family and how that little girl was being raised. And he chose her. The Lord chooses the ordinary to make them extraordinary. Paul was highly trained, but he was using his training to to capture Christians and to put them in jail. And he was responsible for the death of many of them. Why would anybody with such a reputation be used by God? Paul understood. He said, if God can show grace to the like of me, then won't he also uh, be able to show grace to the likes of you? And God didn't change these people. They remained that. They remained common. So the glory was... Obviously, God's. When, when they saw what they were able to do, they said, these guys are uneducated people. They're common fishermen. That was, in fact, to their benefit, not to their detriment. When they began to speak about the things that mattered, we have to go no further than who Jesus was to understand that this is God's default position. It's interesting, when I gave instruction to um, uh, my assistant to develop pictures, I, I said, find an ugly picture of Jesus. And uh, she couldn't find any. Uh, because we always paint him as handsome, kind, smiling. But that's not what Isaiah said he would be. Uh, it said, who has believed our message? 
Why would anybody believe that God is doing a special thing through the Son of God? Uh, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? His strength been revealed. For the Messiah will grow up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, like an old gnarled root. He had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. He wasn't six foot three and blonde hair, blued eye, executive material. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. He was despised. He was mocked. He was rejected by mankind. He was a man who suffered in his life. He was familiar with rejection and with pain throughout his life. Constantly misunderstood. Like from one whom men hide their faces, like he can't be the Savior. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. You know, even when the Lord chose our Savior, he chose integrity, he chose faithfulness. And because of who Jesus was and the integrity that he demonstrated to be obedient even to the point of death, even death of a criminal upon the cross, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus eventually every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. What he did for Jesus, he will do for you. Integrity still matters, despite all the mixed messages, because we're tempted to believe what is not true. Our society will tempt us to do what seems best rather than what is right. Mark Twain once said, make sure that you get your facts first, then you can distort them as you see fit. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because uh, I just finished a book, I mentioned it in the Unify recently, about how Mark Twain came to Ulysses S. Grant, uh, the ex-president, ex-leader of the Union armies, uh, when he was dying of throat cancer, and urged him to publish his memoirs. Grant had lost his shirt to much embarrassment, and he was now indebted because of a failure in the stock market. He had been bamboozled by some, some high-flying people who wanted to use his name. And, and he was devastated financially, and he now had cancer. And Twain came to him and said, you know, if you publish your memoirs, I guarantee you, your family will be provided for. In fact, I will guarantee your wife $250,000 if you will but write your memoirs. Grant was not an author. He had written many military reports. He had written presidential reports. He had never written a book. And Grant was made this promise by Twain. You can imagine how Twain had it on the line. You know, he'd given this guy a, a guarantee, and, and Grant had fulfilled his request, and, and he worked on those memoirs until just a couple of weeks before he died. Uh, even in great pain, he worked on those memoirs. And, and one of his fact-checkers, uh, a man who worked for him in the military, he had hired to check his facts to make sure that everything he said about the battles was correct. This fact-checker uh, tried to blackmail him at the end of uh, the book's writing, uh, saying that he would, unless he was paid more, would say that Grant had not written these things, and he would publish it in the papers, and he did. And when it became known, Twain was beside himself. He stood to lose a lot of money if people believed that these were not actually Grant's books. And when, and when Grant heard about it, he laughed. He said, how long have you been, you know, moving about the country? How long have you been a leader? People always lie. But in the end, integrity matters. In the end, people will know the truth. Let's not pay any attention to him. Let's give it the credit that it deserves. 
And in the end, that man was uh, rejected and the, the book was published and it not only achieved the $250,000 that had been promised to grant, it, it achieved more than twice that amount you know, for his widow and for his family. Integrity matters. It matters in life. It matters in faith. It is where power lies. Let's pray.